you know, spreadsheets are a bit like black jelly beans or pineapple on pizza or Will Ferrell movies, like really divisive. Today, I get to share with you part two of my conversation with Sunny Bailey. Uh, if you haven't already checked out part one, I'd really recommend it. It's a real financial freedom deep dive where we talk all things personal finance and just uh, thoughts on life in general. It's a really beautiful conversation and this one gets even deeper just re-listening to it. There's so many gems, there's so many uh, nice thoughts that Sunny shares that can really help us think in a positive, holistic way about money in general. Going to publish this episode, you know, I knew it had been a while since I'd published part one and just looking at my podcast, I'd actually realized it's been 11 weeks. Um, personally, I've been in a complete winter funk for the last two months, uh, just an absolute survival mode. And I'm going to talk more about this in a separate episode and explain what's been going on. But needless to say, winter in Wellington sucks. And I'm so glad it's over. I'm so glad we're through it. I'm so glad to be coming up for air and feeling like a slightly normal person again. Uh, excited to be sharing more conversations like this with you. And if you have feedback on Sunny's thoughts, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you've just got, got any questions for me, um, please do get in touch. I think, you know, personal human contact is the key to helping each other get out of funks and, and places where we, you know, get too much in our own space or too much in our own heads. Uh, you can um, contact me, email at andrewduncan.co.nz. It'd be great to hear from you. So without further ado... Let's hear some more financial wisdom from the one and only Sunny Bailey. The 4% rule is becoming more and more well known in the kind of personal finance world. And I'm really interested in it because I fell for it, you know, and, and have used as a defining framework uh, myself for a lot of decisions. But I love the way you explored it more deeply and added more nuance to it and really asked good questions that people need to be asking themselves if they're considering this. But would you yeah. mind if I maybe bounce to you to, to describe what the 4% rule is as the, as the more financial expert in this yeah. conversation? But, but sure. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your kind of idea that you kind of, you quote unquote fell for it. Cause I mean, that's quite an interesting or, or extreme way of wording it. No. Yeah. That's probably too extreme. Like I, I, I'm really glad I found that knowledge. I think it empowered me to see financial freedom as a lot more obtainable than I would have otherwise. Yeah. And what I like about the 4% rule is this focus on not just the amount of, um, yeah, defining financial freedom as, as, a, as, a, as an amount of capital, but also as a level of expenditure, right? Like wealth can somewhat be described as like how little you can live on, but not in a stoic, I don't want to spend any money kind of way, but just like, how can you optimize your spending for what's important in life? And um, that ethos to it helped me to discover this more, uh, I guess, minimalist underlying, I guess it was always there in me. And, I, and you know, it, it, it helped me to see how, yeah, aligning our expenditure, what, what was really important and, and stepping away from kind of materialism yeah. could actually help obtain freedom. Like freedom wasn't just a function of like how much money you had in the bank or how much money you had invested. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it certainly draws it into stark contrast, doesn't it? Like, I mean, I often, when I think of the 4% rule, I often think of like Mr. Money Mustache and he, he wrote an article which a lot of people refer to like the shockingly simple math 
behind early retirement. And it's totally true. Like, I mean, if the less you spend, given a certain level of income, the more you're going to save. And that means you can save more, more quickly. And it also means that when you get to a point where you want to live off your investments in one way or another, it means you need less because you spend less. And so, you know, all of these things factor in and it does make it very compelling that the importance of savings rate, you know, for certain people at certain stages of life. And I think it does, you know, there is some beauty in the simplicity of these rules and these messages. And I guess in that spirit, this is probably another narcissism of small differences, like in terms of, you know, the article I recently wrote <laughs> about the the 4% rule, because I think that it is valuable and it has been valuable to enorm- an enormous amount of people. Um, I guess what, one thing I just want to preface any comments I make is that it, my, my article and my, you know, critique of the 4% rule wasn't triggered by any individual author or or article or podcast conversation or anything of that nature. It was triggered because I'd had this conversation with quite a few people just in the, the, the weeks or months leading up to me just kind of thinking, right, I've got to just make the point. Um, and these are all really thoughtful people and, you know, most, almost all of them clients. And, you know, when we actually ran the numbers, what I was consistently finding again this isn't necessarily representative of the whole population but what i was finding was that for these really thoughtful people it was massively or wildly overstating how much they needed in order to retire and it had kind of a lot of follow-on um impacts on them like you know the the way i kind of think about it is it's almost like it put their life into hard mode (laughs) um in the same way that you can put a computer game into easy or medium or hard mode or I don't know. I don't play enough computer games to know <laughs> the terminology, but a good analogy. Yeah. Um, and so it sometimes makes people focus or concern themselves too much on just money or financial aspect of their lives. And it can also make people take on more risks than might necessarily be the case. And now that has all sorts of flow on effects to their life and their quality of life and the decisions that they make. So, you know, to return to your question in terms of what the 4% rule is, people divine it in slightly different ways. Um, It's sometimes easier to think in terms of another way. It's often referred to as the 25 times rule. Mm -hmm. And so what you might do is you might work out how much you want to, to spend each year and you multiply it by 25. So let's say you want $40,000 per year, multiply that by 25, you get a nice round figure of a million dollars and working backwards for that a million dollars, 4% of that is $40,000 per year. So, you know, ostensibly um, the way it's often talked about is if you want to live on some amount of money, you just multiply that by 25 and that's your goal and how much you'd need. So that's how much you'd want to have invested you know, outside your own home, mm. personal home equity to mm. fund that lifestyle for a, a fairly long-term time yeah. horizon. Yeah. And I mean, that's cool. That can be really motivating for a lot of people. But <laughs> I love rules of thumb. I love heuristics. And I think there's a time and place for, for rules of thumbs. I don't think working out how much you need in order to retire comfortably or to feel financially independent 
is the time or place to use a rule of thumb or heuristic. I think it massively oversimplifies a lot of the key things you'll need to consider when thinking about your long-term financial trajectory. And it just removes a whole lot of variables that you should or might need to consider. Um, One other aspect about this, you know, 4% rule as it's been popularized is that it's based on research um, relating to what's often known as safe withdrawal rates. And, uh, you know, people often talk about the Trinity study being kind of the first study that talked about that, but there's been a lot of research following that, trying, you know, different variables and different data sets. But most of this safe withdrawal research relates to specific periods, like 30-year timeframes, which is, you know, great if you're 65 retiring and you kind of expect or hope to live to to 95. But the idea with the safe withdrawal research isn't to work out how much you can spend indefinitely um, in terms of, I guess, living off the income or the interest or anything of that nature. It relates to decumulation or spending down that capital. And so basically it in a lot of these, in a lot of this research, you're, you've been successful if you haven't decumulated all of your capital in the course of the relevant period of time. So if you start with a million dollars and you end up with one dollar or more at the end of 30 years, then it's been successful. Um, and so it's not about passive income necessarily. It's about how much you can actually maintain for a set period of time, um, which is, you know, again, great if you're 65, but not necessarily if you're wanting to retire at the age of 40 or 50. Um, it's quite possible or probable that the amount is going to decumulate um, before, before you leave this mortal coil. It also doesn't factor in other variables or assumptions like whether you receive New Zealand superannuation, whether there will be additional one-off incomings or outgoings. So for example, relating to property, you know, upsizing or downsizing or right-sizing your home, whether that involves helping out loved ones, for example, children with say education or getting onto the property market or anything of that nature. There's so much nuance to it, which I really love the way you framed in the article, right? Like there's you can fall into a trap of thinking, okay, well, I need this amount of money to to be able to, to retire forever. But it's important to think about whether you likely will make any money in your life in the, in the years to come. You know, for, for Anna and I, it's highly likely that we'll create different forms of income over the next 20, 30 years that we'll get interested in different things. And so factoring those in, and, and you also talk about the periods of your life where you'll have higher expenditure maybe as kids get older and they go to secondary schools and um, have lots of school trips going on and things that cost serious amounts of money. Yeah. And- or, or, or the earlier years of your retirement. Like, I mean, for example, most people quite reasonably spend more in the earlier years of their retirement. When you've got your health, you've got your energy and you've got the inclination to go and travel and, and do all of these things around the world and around your house, as opposed to say, when you get into your late seventies, early eighties, where you might have that, not have that same level of energy and inclination to, to spend, you know, so many different factors. <laughs> also, another one is like, what level of confidence do you want to have 
do you want to, you know, be relatively confident that you're going to have enough over 30 or 40 years or, you know, what, what level of buffer or confidence do you want to have so that, you know, you're going to be fine <laughs> um, regardless of, of what happens in the world over the course of decades and my gosh, what is the world going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time? <laughs> I'm learning more and more that reductionism in general can be a really dangerous game. Uh, particularly around really complicated ideas like how much money you need to retire can be uh, challenging and, and, and dangerous to trial and boil that down to really simple formulas. Uh, really learning this with, uh, just as an aside, you know, just in terms of problems in the world, climate change, things like that, trying to re- reduce it down into really simple black and white concepts is, is, not, is often not very helpful and, and misses so much of the nuance and beauty of, solutions and challenges um yeah i think it can be motivating over the short term but i think it can often be counterproductive over the the long run and it can be sometimes cause like you know the four four percent rule can massively overstate how much you want and so you know maybe to begin with it might make you want to you know pinch pennies and and save as much but how sustainable is it that's i guess that's a big question and if you're going to to market or promote a cause based on a particular kind of black and white view what about if and when that view is no longer like there there is clearly more nuance to it than that so yeah you're absolutely right what kind of uh what kind of questions would you encourage people to ask themselves and ask each other if they are uh, maybe in a similar situation to you and i or just a, a similar age group and you know pursuing this idea of financial freedom and the reason I ask that is largely because, you know, if you, if you can get to a point where you feel some sense of financial freedom, it, it can open up a lot of options for you to, to switch careers to something that you might find more fulfilling to create space to spend more time with your kids. Mm-hmm. Or, but it might just be as simple as taking a, a job which pays you less money, which might feel somewhat like going backwards financially. But if you have the sense of that you've obtain some level of financial freedom you can make those kind of choices that are more aligned with your values are there mm-hmm. questions that you might recommend people to consider asking or or just ponder yeah i mean i would i guess i would encourage people to kind of think about the assumptions that they're making um and what what they're prepared to make and and like think beyond just how much this the gen the, the the single assumption of how much do you want to spend um and indefinitely what i find useful is I go through an exercise that I will, that I go through with clients that I refer to as floor casting. Um, and I use that term deliberately because the only guarantee I can give is it, it will be wrong. <laughs> um, and I've, I've got like a 40 minute video on my blog where I kind of run through the process or just illustrate what I do. But basically that's where I just create a spreadsheet <laughs> from scratch that charts out someone's financial life and allows them to input or create various assumptions uh, that they're prepared to make like for example what assumption do you want to make in terms of level of savings over certain periods of your working life Um, what assumptions are you prepared to make in terms of when you retire when you get New Zealand super and what level assumptions about upsizing or downsizing or right sizing your home helping out with loved ones you know and sometimes depending on who you are um buying the batch or buying the yacht, <laughs> which might 
it might not just require capital, but also probably increase the cost cost of your annual living as long as you you have it. And what assumptions do you make about you know if and when you sell it and for how much? So I think it's a really valuable exercise to kind of almost just build it into a spreadsheet, which, you know, again, it's, it's a hard one because that's not an answer for everybody. Cause I know that, you know, spreadsheets are a bit like black jelly beans or pineapple on pizza or Will Ferrell movies, like really divisive. <laughs> you either love them or, or don't um, for the most part, but that's often one of the better ways for at least for me to communicate it with people so that they can actually see it and get it translated and see it visually. So you can kind of see, okay, if I make these assumptions, what is my financial trajectory going to look like? And it's not just one straight line. It will have ups and downs. And, you know, you will have to make assumptions like what assumptions about investment returns <laughs> are you going to, 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 to make? But you can actually see what the course of your financial life might look like based on assumptions. And if you think you're making pretty reasonable assumptions and you can see, huh, I'm going to be fine, <laughs> that gives you a whole lot of freedom. So like, you know, you know, at a personal level, like I'm not, am I, we're not financially independent in the sense that we have a passive income covering all of our costs and we're probably quite far from that. But I know just visually, like looking at the assumptions that I'm very comfortable with making, we're fine. We're on track. And by the time we hit that retirement sort of age, we're going to be absolutely fine. And it doesn't matter where I am right now. What matters is that I am on the journey and that you can also make those assumptions and you can see these trade-offs and work out, am I prepared to make these trade-offs because they're in line with my values and priorities and am I still going to be fine doing that? Love yeah, that. that feels a bit like an evasive answer, but that's no, it really doesn't. an honest one. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like a, a good approach to make educated, informed thoughtful decisions yeah and even as a tool i don't recommend just using the one like in the same way that you should you know kind of kill your gurus <laughs> you should um find different ways to think about things so you know even when i'm working on like really detailed reports with clients i don't just do that one process i also use different methodologies and use different data sets like you know historical backtesting um, you know, and firecalc.com is a really good website for doing that where you can't run through quite as many assumptions, but you can kind of see what am I likely, how am I likely to end up with based on certain, like based on certain investment returns. And then you can also do Monte Carlo analyses and, you know, just different approaches to answer the same question in, in a much more nuanced way than just say a 4% role or multiplying how much you think you're going to need by 25. Love the fire count recommendation. I'll definitely put that in the in the show mm. notes and also the um, the video that you mentioned explaining that. It's terrible perfect. production quality, but you know, <laughs> done is better than perfect. <laughs> done is so much better than perfect. Yeah, something that I think you also comes through in a lot of your writing is around this idea of like investing in social capital, and mm -hmm. so it's probably a nice point to to talk about when we're, we're discussing so much about money and financial freedom and and all this and i know for me it's it's been a, an easy trap to fall into to just be focused on money and and um not weighting that the same as uh investments like building a network of people that lift you up and you know and and, and surrounding yourself with the right kind of people that you want to be surrounded by and investing in education 
for yourself, of course, investing in your understanding of the world, taking trips or going on various adventures. And I, I love that that comes through in a lot of your education that you put out there. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to re- reference that and say thank you for <laughs> giving giving voice to that, which I, personally I, I don't, uh, I need to do, I will keep getting better at understanding <laughs> the value of these things that you can't easily put a financial yeah. calculation on. I mean, and it's so fundamentally important. Like I sometimes talk about my blog as being quite squishy in the sense that I don't talk about specific financial products that often. And I certainly don't do like comparisons between, you know, investment platforms or managed funds or, you know, comparing one index based funds to another or vice versa. Like partly that's out of laziness because I don't want to have to do it once and then have to look back and update it because, you know, these things can change. Um, And part of it is just, it's not as interesting to write about. (laughs) Um, But more relevantly, I think, you know, in terms of how I want to write about and how I want to write and just the way I think about the world is that's really not as relevant or important as thinking about these big picture questions. Like, you know, the question isn't what KiwiSaver fund do I go with or what managed fund is, is the, you know, quote unquote best. I mean, at the end of the day, we often talk about shades of right. Like we don't know ahead of time, which one's going to be the, the best performing or not. Like, you know, I've got, preferences or whatever but you know like KiwiSaver for instance I mean no matter who you're with if you're in a conservative fund when you should be in a growth fund doesn't matter like you know the 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 question of whether you're in a growth fund (laughs) um versus you know if that's appropriate for you versus balanced or conservative is way more important than the provider um and it's the same with like you know specific financial investments but then you can step back further and you know the question is like a financial investments the appropriate approach for you and you know i've already talked about you know there are some clients where property is is right based on their circumstances and their background etc but you know there, there are other ways to invest and you know there, there are other financial ways to invest and you know your own ventures or ventures of people that you're associated with um you know often potential great rewards it's also a great way to turn a large fortune into a small fortune if you don't do it right um but then there's things that don't show up on your balance sheet. And I kind of sometimes use the term shadow assets. So um, I first thought about this in the context of, you know, I had a few clients in a row who had investments in really speculative ventures, like basically angel investment sort of things. And they were like, put it on the balance sheet, but put it at zero because it's not really likely to, you know, we, I don't know what it's going to do. Um, and so it's kind of like a shadow assets there. Don't value it at anything, but I incorporate that as there are lots of other assets that we have that don't show up. And probably the, the major one is human capital. <laughs> I mean, so you're, you're 37, I'm, I'm 42. And, you know, regardless of what's on our balance sheet, um, it's likely that the most valuable asset that the two of us have is our ability to be productive and create value over the course of the coming decades. That doesn't show up on a balance sheet, but you know, if we think about the amount of income that we have the potential to generate, if you put a price on that, it'll probably be worth more than definitely most people at our age and stage would be worth. And so, you know, it's interesting because like the most important or valuable investment decision for people at certain ages and stages isn't 
what KiwiSaver fund to go with or what investment fund, but, you know, how can I best use my human capital and the productive years that I've got ahead of me, um, both from a selfish or narrow or financial perspective, but also from a broader perspective of, you know, what does wealth mean to me? How do I want to invest in terms of, you know, living a life that's aligned with my values and priorities where I can kind of focus on what I want, what uh, that I can feel the way I want. And also, you know, how can I invest in the world <laughs> in terms of leaving the world better than I found it? And how can I have an impact? So human capital is probably the most direct one, but there's other ones like social capital. And again, there's a narrow instrumental way you can think about it because, you know, contracts make, uh, contacts make contracts. And, you know, there's, there's the strength of weak ties for finding jobs and opportunities. But from a broader definition of, you know, what wealth means to you, like, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, when I ask people, you know, what don't you want to happen? It's even when we've been talking about investments and stuff, it's usually it relates to health and it relates to relationships and, you know, and investing in your social capital is really valuable, partly from an a, a instrumental perspective, but also just from a, what does life mean? And what's, what is it about? And I mean, that's, that's ultimately, at least for me and for, for many people, I think where wealth truly is. Yeah. That, that if you work a 40 hour week, that's kind of your gift to society and it, it is your, the biggest investment you can make and how you spend that time. And, and so spending some time thinking about that and reflecting on that is so valuable in my mind and understanding the opportunity cost of mm. doing something that you don't like now, what's the social and human and career capital you could be building somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there's, there's flip sides to it as well. Like, I mean, if, if I was still, you know, if, if I were acting as a lawyer and, you know, working ridiculous hours and my wife was still doing what she was doing, I'd probably be pretty miserable. I wouldn't be this, same dad that I currently am, you know, always aiming to be better. <laughs> but you know, there's there's also the risk <laughs> like of, you know, strain on relationships and increasing the likelihood of a separation or something of that nature. So there is there's both a a an a, def- a defensive aspect as well as, you know, an attack in terms of, you know, focusing on what you want to achieve in in life. And I guess you could even say broadening it out, it's the same with like health. Like it's a it's a possibly a rationalization I use for like spending money on health related expenditures like because I mean if you know health is valuable and important but even from a narrow perspective if you can focus on ensuring that you maintain high health and good levels of energy then it probably does mean that you can be productive over a longer period of time which might actually have narrow economic benefits so it's almost like a defense aspect as well as the fact that, you know, it's quite nice to, to ride a dual suspension bike and, and have a kayak and things like that. We would definitely spend more time thinking about shadow assets in my own life and attributing value to those in the same way that, you know, we have like a, a net worth you know, spreadsheet, which, you know, we like constantly, not constantly, I shouldn't say, um, every now and then we'll pop in and, you look yeah. at how those numbers stack oh, yeah. up, but it's only one part of the picture, right? Oh, totally. I mean, I still like, I still encourage people to do that. And it's something that I do, you know, I, I don't look at, you know, how my investment returns are going or anything like that. 
Um, but I, I do regularly kind of, I've got a spreadsheet which kind of records over time how we've been going and that kind of gives me confidence or kind of validates a lot of the forecast forecasting that I've done just to, you know, give us additional confidence that we're on the, the right track. And I think it's such a nice reminder of when uh, we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves, I think, to make ideal decisions around like ethical investing, which is something you and I have communicated a bit about in the past as well. And it kind of fits yeah. into this discussion too, where this, uh, I know I've put pressure on myself in the past to like, oh, is my KiwiSaver aligned with my values? And, you know, should I invest in this ESG fund? And, you know, and, and where am I best to spend money? And should I be investing in, you know, carbon credits? And is that going to be good for the environment? And it's, it's something that it's easy to put a lot of weight into uh, rather than again stepping a little bit back and getting a bit of perspective and thinking about the the bigger picture um but i know that's something you're quite passionate about as well as this idea of kind of ethical investing <laughs> yeah well i mean making decisions that you know align with you know how you want to see the the world and ethical consumption as well but i guess that's another you know conversation um which i i, I liken to a bit like staring at the sun it's not easy to do <laughs> and you can do a lot of things that are well-intentioned that don't necessarily have the impact that you want and again this is where we could probably have a really long conversation and i'd be really interested in, in our our views and to what, what extent they, they differ but the, i guess the relevant aspect there is that you know ethical investing is really difficult to do from a truly practical perspective you know, there's, there's a phrase out there, you know, greenwashing, where you can be really cynical and you can think that some financial product issuers will promote their ESG credentials, ethical social governance credentials, just to encourage people to invest with them. Um, and even if you do find, say, an investment fund manager that does talk about the areas that you, or focuses on the areas that you do, it's actually really hard to find someone who necessarily shares your values specifically. So for example, yes, you might think you don't want to invest in landmines or anything related to, to nuclear. Some people don't want to relate, invest in alcohol. Some people are a bit indifferent, indifferent to it. I, I've got quite a few clients who kind of say, you know, a lot of these social media platforms are the least ethical businesses around. And you know, th then there are businesses within, you know, quote unquote ethical industries um, that just, don't act ethically um so it's it's a real rabbit hole that you can kind of fall down and it can be just really challenging to invest in the companies that actually meet your specific values and ethical views the other aspect of it is that i'm a little bit skeptical <laughs> about the extent to which it has an impact so you know when it comes to kind of ethical investing when it comes to publicly listed shares when you buy a share, you're not buying it off the company itself. You're bringing it off another shareholder. By owning a share or not, you're not really impacting to any large extent how a company is actually run. And so buying or selling a share actually doesn't have much of an instrumental impact on how it operates. So I think it can feel good not to be invested in one company or another, but you know, from a practical what are the actual consequences point of view? It doesn't make as much of a difference. You know, arguably you could make a bigger difference through your consumption decisions. Um, but probably the, the most important decisions are either governance related, but it's often regulatory in terms of supporting policies and laws and regulations 
that align with your values and priorities and not just the regulations themselves, but supporting the enforcement of them <laughs> and the resourcing of the regulator regulators to be able to enforce those laws that reflect what your needs are. You know, there's, there's a lot of room for good faith debate about it, but I think it's one of those areas where we can agonize over it when there are probably other areas that we might be able to have a more direct and practical impact on the world. Like for example, how to invest our human capital. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really, really nice to put. Um, I like the Mindful Money website. If anyone mm. wants the, a place where they can go and uh, try and align their, say, KiwiSaver or investment fund decisions with their, with their values. But I agree with what you said around it's more of a helping you feel, you know, helping you sleep at night for one of a less cliche term rather than a, a really uh, difference-making kind of, decision about a, you know the the impact you want to have in the world um, yeah and i mean I, I really like the mindful money um website and what they do and i think it's it's a great exercise and kind of even just from a self self-knowledge perspective like just going through this process and what what are the causes that you prioritize or care about more than others and also just realizing that as with money, as with any decision in life, we are in a kind of constant state of triage and there are always opportunity costs and, and trade-offs that we need to make. And I mean, that's kind of a big theme of our conversation, isn't it? Like the, the decisions, you know, whenever you say yes to something, <laughs> including like prioritizing one particular value over another, you are to an extent having to say no to other things. And you know, that's, that's where the magic is. Are you making decisions more broadly that, line up with what you actually care about in life as i've got older something we've been working on a lot lately anna and i where we've rather than setting a lot of goals which can be quite arbitrary and can really depend on how you felt that day and how you were aligned at the time it's like we're trying to really get clear on what our values are so that we can have those values as a guiding light and then any decisions we're making kind of refer back to those values as a framework and found that a really helpful thought kind of model to think to, to, to free us up from having these time-defined goals which can create stress and expectations and, and instead just saying look if we have these values and if we keep them top of mind and if we're clear on what those are then the the decisions and and the how we spend our time will more so take care of itself and mm. in, in many ways and so I, I really agree with what you're saying about you know, just trying to spend time creating space to get clear on what's important to you. Yeah. And I mean, I, that goes back to, you know, defining what, what wealth means to you. And I guess you can put it in lots of different ways, but it's interesting. I was chatting to a, a product provider who was just kind of surveying different advisors and I put it back to them. Like what, what's something that you noticed that kind of is something that distinguishes different advisors from others. And they said that that was actually one of the things there's, there's some advisors that are quite focused on like having specific goals and, you know, helping people to kind of aim and achieve fairly specific goals. And then there are others that are a bit more values based <laughs> and a bit more soft and squishy. And they kind of suggested that I was in the latter. Yeah. I, I'm pretty strong advocate for that because, you know, I often find my conversations with clients, they might have some instrumental view about like they want to accumulate X amount of dollars by a certain age, or they might want to have a portfolio of properties, you know, of X number of properties or generating certain amount of rent. And you have to unpack that. And well, I feel like you have to unpack it and work out like, 
that sound, they sound like instrumental goals. Like what's the actual purpose behind them? And I think that's where any way that you can go through that exercise and keep asking yourself, because like you and Anna will continue to articulate that and they may change your weighting of different things. And, you know, it's an important and valuable sort of um, set of conversations to have. And interesting, like they sound dull. It's just like philosophy. It sounds like the most boring or dull sort of set of conversations you can have, but man, it kind of, there's such special conversations because they're about what you care about most deeply. And who does, oh, well, I, I, I love having those conversations. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. I, I see this off and I haven't worked in property for a long time. It's an industry where it can be very, everything is measured on money. You know, how much commission you make and how many houses you've sold and what your earnings were compared to last year and all this stuff. And in that world, there's so much planning and not just in property, but in other spaces, there's so much planning around, all right, we made this much money last year. So our goal is to make 30% more this year. And in five years time, we want to be employing this many people and have our revenue that be this much. And so rarely do you see people digging a little deeper and saying, okay, but why do we want that? Why is that important? Why do we give a shit? Uh, and I so I'd love to encourage that too. Just, just um, it's cool to have goals that are measured in terms of numbers, but so important to just not just set goals for goals sake and arbitrary figures that are just more than, you know, if the goal is just more then what's, what's the point? Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a good and eternal red flag, isn't it? Like, you know, just if it's more then why more? Why more? Um, yeah, because marginal benefit, like it's it's the whole idea. Like marginal benefits tend to reduce over time, um, and so you know if if you are already really financially comfortable, and is is the marginal benefit of focusing on that as much or as valuable as focusing on other areas of your life, um, whether that be health or your relationships or you know even just that pet project <laughs> you might have or that you wanted to do since you're a twelve year old boy or girl, like. Yeah. And I think we're all programmed initially, I think, to have only that framework of scoring, right? Like we score our success on accumulating what a lot of us do on accumulating assets and kind of achieving more in a financial sense without, yeah, exactly as you're saying, kind of factoring in those other areas, human capital, social capital and happiness, um, mental health. Well, when you you die, are people going to even know how much you have, like what your net worth is to like to the nearest hundred or thousand or a million dollars. No, they'll, they'll, they'll remember whether you're a good person and a good friend and, and, and dad or family member. And, you know, whether you had a positive impact on, on others. And to me, that's what matters. But, you know, again, I'm not prescribing that for everybody. necessarily. <laughs> I know that everyone's different and everyone has different views, but I guess I think it's really valuable or important for me to be upfront about I guess my prejudices or biases both as as an advisor trying to be as independent as possible but also as a, as a human being making my own decisions and I think that question of why why is that important to you is just a, a very good way to keep digging deeper without any without yeah. any judgment uh, yeah. and I should say that uh, that, that you know it's what I said before is not intending to to judge people's decisions or choices but no, really yeah. important to keep um keep asking why why is that important why does that matter to us yeah I mean I think it's a really valuable or important north star and this is where <laughs> I sometimes refer, my, refer to myself more as a biographer <laughs> than an advisor um because it, it almost goes back to that 
stories or, or sorry, the idea of having a story of your life and having many chapters because different chapters or different seasons will have different answers to those sorts of questions. So, you know, it, it feels a bit squishy and mushy and, and soft, but it's really valuable and important to, to have that North star that will help determine the decisions that you make. This is an entirely complete segue, but in terms of your experience and your financial practice and, and working with clients, I'm just thinking of people who are listening, who might not have access to someone like yourself in their lives right now is there like some low-hanging fruit like some really common either misconceptions or assumptions that you see a lot of people make it's very hard we've talked a lot about reductionism it's very hard to cast like generalist (laughs) statements but are there are there common mistakes that you would just recommend people to watch out for or things that you come across in new clients where that, that are very common I think we've covered quite a few of them. And I mean, I guess I need to preface this by saying that the types of people that I work with aren't necessarily representative of the general population. Like, for example, you wouldn't want me to, to talk to me about budgeting or anything of, of that nature. So, you know, there, there is an extent to which I work with people who already have some financial and or professional runs on the board. So I guess that's something I'll need to say. But I guess with those people, I think... Partly it is that myopia of compound interest, you know, where, where a lot of what we read relates to the, the value of compound interest when it comes to investing, but there's compound in that can relate to other areas or domains of life. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think especially for really thoughtful, resourceful people, I think there is a huge underestimation of the value and importance of their human capital. Like that's the most important decision that you'll make. And, you know, if you end up coming out of your twenties, maybe with not the most financial wealth there is, but with a really good sense of what you like and what likes you and who you like and who likes you, that's, for a lot of people going to position you better than just having a little bit more money in the bank because those returns will compound over time. This probably isn't a direct answer to your question, but it's oh, it it's a theme yeah. that um, like another kind of theme that I've had with quite a few people is especially people at our point of time, you know, those with some financial and especially professional runs on the board, I think it can get be too easy to get too conservative in relation to what you can do with your time and your energy. Sometimes taking a little bit of time off or thinking through how best to spend the rest of your working career can be the best investment you make. And it's not an investment that shows up on your balance sheet in terms of, you know, improving your financial assets or something. It might, there might actually be a cost in terms of, you know, having to spend some savings or opportunity costs in terms of lost income, but it might generate the best rewards of all, both financially by, you know, having the ladder up against the right wall, (laughs) but also from a, what really matters. And I think, you know, we can talk about risk, you know, narrow financial terms. I think people often equate risk with, you know, short-term volatility or ups and downs. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a real risk in terms of being too conservative. And that works both in the financial domain, like you can put money in term deposits because it's not very risky, 
But if you do that over the course of decades, there's a real risk that you end up worse off for taking too little short-term risk. And it's the same, not just in finance, but in terms of other areas of life as well. You know, that's not necessarily the case with everybody. Your mileage may vary, but I think maybe one of the real big risks is the real risk of regret of stepping decades into the future, looking back and regretting that you could have or would have or should have made some decisions that would have enabled the story of your life to more closely align with what you wanted it to be. So beautifully put, Sonny. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's a really nice place to to finish up. Other than that, just I haven't heard it put so beautifully before. So thank you. That's awesome. No, thanks. Thanks for the chance to have a chat, and thanks for all the um, the terrific stuff that you do. I really enjoy it, and I can't wait to uh, to continue to to read and listen to more of what you do. <laughs> thanks, Annie. I'm really stoked for everyone who's listening into this conversation, and uh, so thank you all to those people who are listening. I think it's um, so much good stuff there. And I'm already excited to listen to this chat again as I go through and edit it and can't wait to, to get it up online. So uh, thank you all for listening and thank you so much, Sonny Bailey. And uh, I just encourage people as well as I sign off to go and check out wealthandrisk.nz is the blog that we've referenced a lot in this conversation. And I'll put a few of the key articles that we've referenced in the show notes, um, particularly around compound interest, the 4% rule and a couple of others. So you can jump straight to those. So just look in the description of the podcast and you'll be able to find a, a quick link because there are hundreds of articles on your blog. It's, it's prolific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've actually stopped. I'm taking the pedal off the metal and stopping posting quite as regularly so I can actually make all those articles more accessible and update them. Um, yeah. Because there's, I think there's nearly 500 articles up there. Wow. <laughs> and I try to make most of them evergreen. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, evergreen's the way to go. It's a similar thing. Like, I think writing yeah, evergreen content that, that people can take at any point and, and help them make more informed decisions is so smart. Like you say, I think that's a better place to focus your time and energy rather than comparing different index funds or different financial products. And- it is. And even just from a personal point of view, it makes it easier to kind of go back and see whether you still agree with certain views or, you know, kind of explore what, you know, the version of myself in 2013 thought compared to 2022. Definitely. Thanks, Sonny. It's awesome. Thanks. It's been emotional. (laughs) 